How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Those words are both exhilarating and terrifying, especially for a preacher. People need to hear something, and God has something to say. And a preacher speaks those words from God, or at least should. So often when God goes working in the world, he looks for people through whom he can pour his life and love and words. I find that fascinating, mostly because God could do it all himself, but he invites people to join him in the adventure. I didn't set out to be a preacher. As a boy, I wanted to be an astronaut or a secret agent or a professional football player. But there was something about the good news of God's grace that I just couldn't wiggle away from. Something profoundly liberating. Words that changed me. A message other people needed to hear. And something God wanted to say. I wondered, maybe He could say it through me. Now one of my greatest joys in life is to challenge and encourage people with God's truth to remind myself and others what God is saying. He's always speaking through His Word and in the nudges of His Spirit. I'm honored and humble and still a little surprised that I get to be a preacher. When I begin to write a sermon, I'll start with a prayer that goes something like this. God, unless you speak, I'm most likely going to waste people's time. You have something to say, I know you do. Please reveal that to me. Empower me to say what you want said. And may your Holy Spirit work in the minds and hearts of those who hear. I'll sometimes remind myself of a subtle but important distinction. I don't teach the Bible. I teach people the Bible. Because God is speaking to people, His heart is for people. So before I preach the sermon, I'll imagine people, all kinds of people, who will hear what God wants to say. The couple, newly married, who are eager to make sure God is in the center of their home. The high school student, whose future is uncertain, but who can make a difference in a world that needs Jesus. The single mom, who feels alone and overwhelmed. The middle-aged man who is coming to church to give God one more try. The one who is filled with shame and guilt, hoping the loving God they've heard about loves them too. The elderly woman who feels passed over and wonders if she still has something to offer. These are real people who sit among us the family call the church. Some of them know Jesus already, others do not. But all are loved by God. All are loved by God. That's one of the most remarkable statements in all of life. So we've just come through the Christmas season. 
that time where we exchange gifts, where we celebrate the joy of Christmas. But we all remember that it was all about God's gift to the world, the giving of His Son. What an extraordinary celebration Christmas really is. So we find this profound truth, most simply stated, in a single verse. It might be the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Maybe you've guessed it already. John 3.16. Here it is. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God is giving out of His love. That's what this verse is reminding us. And even though the verse is well known, we don't know for sure if John is writing these words or if Jesus spoke these words. In fact, if you do a little research, you'll find that translations are about equally divided and commentators are about equally divided. If you go to, for example, a red letter edition of the New Testament, where the words of Jesus are printed in red, you'll discover in many versions that Jesus is continuing the conversation and He's the one saying those words of John 3.16. That's the view that I take personally. I think Jesus is speaking these words. John 3.16. In fact, what a wonderful chapter, John 3. One night, a highly respected Jewish religious leader came to Jesus. He's coming to Jesus by night. Because it's as though he's sneaking around. He doesn't want anyone to see him. And yet he's so curious about who Jesus really is. Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You can see the curiosity that Nicodemus has about Jesus. He's come to Jesus by night, and he wants to know more about who this man really is. He's on to something. He knows that Jesus has come from God. God is working through him in powerful ways to do these amazing signs. And Jesus, in this conversation, goes straight to the real issue as he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is hearing this for the first time. Born again, what a strange idea. And only several verses later, Jesus goes straight to the point and says it plainly when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is where real life comes from, Jesus is telling Nicodemus. If you have any hope of being with God forever, You must be born again. You must experience an inner transformation. And it's in this conversation that Jesus would eventually speak these words, John 3.16. But as with most famous Bible verses, they they often uh, are are not overshadowed, but they they come to this place where we see, well, that's famous Bible verse. We forget the verses around them. We forget that there are verses after John 3.16 and we forget there are verses before John 3.16 because the famous Bible verse gets all the attention. In other words, there are verses before and after John 3.16. There are bookends on either side of John 3.16. Do you know what those verses are? For example, listen to John 3.17, the verse immediately following John 3.16. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 
Now, I think many people are surprised that this is God's posture. This is God's plan because they've suspected all along that if Jesus has come, if God's become a human being and come to this earth, it's because they need to be condemned. And yet this is not God's approach. God is not out to get them. God is not out to condemn them. Instead, Jesus has come as a savior. Did you catch the words of John 3, 17? That through him, people might be saved. That's John 3, 17 on, on the back end of John 3, 16. But I'm especially fascinated by the verses that precede John 3, 16. On the front end of this famous passage, here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, immediately preceding that famous John 3, 16 verse. Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Did you catch it? Yes, immediately before John 3.16, Jesus talks about Moses lifting up a snake. That's right before this famous passage. So I have a strange fascination with snakes, especially poisonous snakes. I'm not fascinated in the sense that I want to hang out with them or be around them. In fact, uh, I'm a little frightened of them. But I'm fascinated by them. Maybe you remember that very first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I can still remember it. There's a scene in which they're searching for the ark and they approach this ancient crypt and they slide the cover off the crypt and down into this abyss, this darkness, they begin to sense that the floor is moving. So they take a lit torch, drop it to the bottom of this open chasm only to discover that the the floor is filled with snakes The floor is moving. And it was Indiana Jones who said, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? I think he shares my perspective. I remember a story from my childhood. I was probably six years old growing up up in rural Georgia. There was a story that my parents told me about a man who lived not far from us. He was out mowing his field on his tractor. His name was Mr. Pennington. I still remember that. As a kid, I'm, 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 I'm listening to this story being told, wondering what, what's going to happen here. And Mr. Pennington, as the story goes, started mowing his field on the outside and moving toward the center of the field, not realizing that while he did that, he was driving toward the center of the field everything that he was passing by. And so when he reached the center of the field, he turned his tractor off, stepped off his tractor into a bed of rattlesnakes. There's something about calling it a bed of rattlesnakes that makes it even more terrifying. You can imagine as a child, oh my gosh, he ended up living as the story goes. But this was the story told to me as a six-year-old. I was terrified. I was terrified about mowing a field. I didn't want to be on a tractor. Snakes, not very exciting. Nicodemus would have been familiar with the story Jesus refers to. It's in Numbers chapter 21. So the children of Israel, remember, had been delivered from bondage, the bondage of Egypt. God had selected them. God was moving them toward a land that he had promised them. And on that journey, they were sick and tired of wandering in the wilderness. God had provided sustenance 
for them, supernatural feeding, but they were sick of that as well. And so they were complaining over and over and over, both to Moses and to God, day after day after day. And so we're told in Numbers chapter 21, verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents, that's a fancy way of saying poisonous snakes. God sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That's terrifying. You talk about a story that would, like, urge us not to be complainers. Here we go. These people were complaining, and God said, I've had enough. And so God sent poisonous snakes. Many of the people were bitten and many people died. And so next verse, therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We're so sorry. We don't want to be bitten by poisonous snakes. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Well, then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, make a poisonous snake, construct it, and put it on a pole. And it shall be that when everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. And so, that's what Moses did. He fashioned a serpent, a snake, out of bronze, and he put it on a pole. And so it was that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What a fascinating story. These people are being bitten by poisonous snakes. God says to Moses, hey, I want you to do a little art craft here. I want you to make a, a, a serpent. I want you to put it on a pole. And it will be that when people are bitten by a snake, if they look at the serpent on a pole, they'll live. Now, God could have done away with the snakes. That's not what he did. He chose an illustration, didn't he? Now, it's not difficult to see the connection that Jesus is making. The world is snake bit. We're all in need of being saved. And just like the bronze serpent, Jesus would be placed on a pole for all to see. I like to think of it like this when we go back into this Old Testament passage. Looking at the serpent for healing is like believing in Jesus for eternal life. This is the analogy that Jesus is drawing in this conversation with Nicodemus. And, in fact, the image of a single serpent on a pole is the most recognizable medical symbol in the world. You've seen it. I've seen it. It's everywhere. In fact, that symbol on the side of an ambulance is a reminder that God, in His great love, has made provision for every single person. Talk about a conversation starter. Hey, there goes an ambulance. What do you think that symbol is on the side of that ambulance? Maybe... Maybe just maybe John 3.16 is so popular because it so simply expresses God's loving plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's think about the words in that verse. God so loved... Now, it's easy to start that verse and think God loved the world in a big way. God so much loved the world. And while that's true, that's not the point of these words. That's not what God is telling us. A better way to translate it would be God so loved the world. God loved in this way. God loved like so. And then he's going to tell us how he loved. 
In fact, God is love, isn't he? That's a description of God. It's part of his nature. He cannot not love. God so loved. God loves the world, we're told. God loved the world like this. The world. Now, to view the world as anything less than everyone is a, my opinion, a tortured twisting of the passage. When God says world, he means everyone. God's love is directed toward every single person. God gave. God loved the world like this. And he's going to tell us how he loved the world. God loved the world like this. God gave. That's how he demonstrated his love. God loved the world like this, that he gave his only begotten, his better translated one and only son, or even better translated, his unique son. There's nobody like Jesus. God loved the world in this way. How did God love the world? By giving his unique son. And it doesn't stop there. We're told then how we can respond to this incredible act of generosity on the part of God, our Father. That whoever believes in Him, now we're getting to the simple response that God is looking for in human beings. That whoever believes in Him, to believe in Jesus is to be persuaded that Jesus has forgiven your sins, taken your sins on himself, and in addition to that, to be persuaded that he now offers you life that never ends, eternal life. That's what we're believing Jesus for. We're believing Jesus for his death on behalf of our sins. And we're believing him that he has now promised us life that never ends. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The moment you believe in Jesus, you have everlasting life. It's not something you get or wait for when you die. You have it present tense. You have life that will never end. So before I wrote this sermon, I imagined you. I prayed for you. And I believed that God has something he wants to say to you. He is speaking very clearly. And here's what he's saying. Let's think about John 3.16 for a minute. When we think about that verse, what is God saying to you? He's at least saying this. You are completely and perfectly loved by God. That's what he's saying. But he's not done. He's also saying that we understand God took extraordinary action to demonstrate his love for you. It wasn't a passive love. It wasn't a feeling. It wasn't a song. God took action. God completely and perfectly loved you by taking action. What did he do? He took extraordinary action. In addition, we're not done yet. God wants you to live forever with him and the company of the redeemed. That's God's desire. That's what he wants. He wants you to live forever. I would even go so far as suggesting every one of us has that longing. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's placed eternity in our hearts. So whenever we have that idea that maybe there's more, maybe there's something to this, maybe there has to be something after I die, that longing comes from God. 
God has placed it there. He's placed eternity in our hearts, as he says. God's offer to you and to me of never-ending life is free by believing him for it. That's what else we've discovered. It's free by believing him for it. God is offering us life. Do you get it? You get the wonder of the simplicity of the most famous verse in the Bible. God gave his son for you.